Capital Musings, the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, welcome. If you have been a long-time listener, long time because we are now in double digits in terms of podcast episodes, so that is quite long. Thank you. You can find Capital Musings on iTunes and on Spotify, as well as on the main page of our website, uncdf.org. I'm here today with a great guest. And just by way of background, when we talk about development finance, when we talk about economic empowerment, the goal here in terms of the podcast is also to bring different voices from different areas to provide insights that could and very well should be driving uh, conversations within our space of economic development, impact investment, and the sustainable development goals. And I have a great guest to help us with that. Lauren Silbert is the general manager of The Balance. The Balance is a personal finance website, which is under the parent company of .dash. And The Balance provides content about personal finance for the modern workforce. And we'll ask Lauren to unpack a bit about The Balance uh, later on in the broadcast. But we're going to focus today on the nature and the realities that come with being unbanked. And unbanked is a term that's often used in the context of economic development. And we look at it in terms of not having the tools or the means by which you are integrated into a formal economy. So by extension, in order to to work, to raise capital, to form capital, you have to operate within informal economies. The reason I'm very excited to have Lauren on today is we're going to look at this from both a U.S. perspective, and then from there determine what are the common realities in terms of being unbanked, particularly for women, and what tech solutions Lauren has seen that may very well be applicable or that we should be considering in the context of developing countries generally and the LDCs in particular. So Lauren, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me, David. Well, it's great that you're here. That was very long-winded on my part, so (laughs) I apologize. So I'd like to start very general, even though I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably well aware of what it is, the nature of the challenge of financial inclusion, Mm -hmm. the nature of the challenge of not being banked. But why don't you just unpack that for us in your own way based on what you've seen? What is it when you're talking to someone about the challenge of being unbanked? How do you see it? I think the biggest challenge that we see with unbanked, and I think everyone sort of knows what this means, but it means that you do not have a traditional checking account or savings account with a financial institution. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest challenge with being unbanked is that for the majority of people that exist in this world, a financial institution like a bank and having a checking account as a very basic form is almost the only interaction you have with the financial system. Mm and any financial education at all. Right. And because, especially in America, let's say, and I know it's true for the rest of the world, only five states are required to teach financial education in high schools. So having a checking account is almost everyone's first step and a lot of people's only step into any formal education and your finances. And my particular goal at The Balance is trying to inform everyone on how to grow in their financial lives, more prosperity down the line, and feel empowered to make good financial decisions. If you never even get to that first step, you are so far behind anyone. And it really just means that you're not setting yourself up for success down the line. So being unbanked really puts everyone at a disadvantage because it's almost the only education that you really get. You've really touched already on your first answer. You've and thank you for that. You've touched on a lot of themes in terms of financial literacy, financial education, and and just what is what are the 
what are the practical implications of, of just not having that level of understanding. Uh, I'd love to dive into that a mm-hmm. little deeper um, in the se- and, and maybe and with a particular focus on women. Mm-hmm. So do you see a distinct experience in the context of women not being uh, women not being banked, women not being integrated into a formal economy or just from the standpoint of financial literacy? I know that was a lot. But. Yeah, I think that women often suffer from a lack of confidence even more so than their male counterparts. Really? And so what happens is if you're never actually getting to that position where you are empowered to learn something about your options in terms of finances, that you're never really going to be able to move forward. So there's always a gap in terms of how much confidence women versus men have in their finances. And I'd say that oftentimes women take a backseat and let their male spouses or significant others take the lead in a lot of the financial decisions in their household. And so they may not actually even be on the bank accounts that are supporting their entire home. And so the idea is that they are unbanked in their own particular way. I think it's hard. A lot of the statistics that are collected about being unbanked are done by household, right? So they're not necessarily done by individual, which is another really important thing which we've talked about this before, is like disaggregating the data around what's going on, right? Because if women are thinking that 92% of America has bank accounts, but they don't have a personal bank account, they're like, crap, like what is going on with my life? Like, why don't I have a bank account? And I think that is then really discouraging. And we did a study recently that found like, as soon as you are discouraged, you have so much more anxiety related to your finances then you can be even less likely to socialize with other people, especially about your finances. And then you're really not continuing to push yourself forward in any way. I want to dive into that even in a deeper Mm -hmm. way, because first off, I think it's a really interesting point you make, because we talk so much in the context of the least developed countries about these cultural factors Mm -hmm. that prevent women from going after women's economic Mm -hmm. empowerment and these opportunities for for myriad reasons, but again, relating to culture. And you're kind of talking about discouragement from the standpoint of women, lack of confidence in the context of the United States and a developed economy Mm -hmm. sense. So what's driving the discouragement? Why are women in the United States and developed markets discouraged when it comes to financial inclusion? I would say that we are an increasingly large immigrant population in this country. And a lot of stats that we've seen are that, especially people that are not born in this country, Mm -hmm. I think we're around 30% of the United States is an immigrant population Mm -hmm. or not born here. And I think you already start from a disadvantage when you come here and you are an immigrant, right? You have no credit. You have to sort of live with either family or friends or really you don't have the same access to government or identification or financial institutions. And so I think as that population grows, you know, women in particular that are coming feel a little bit disadvantaged in sort of what they can do. And I think that number keeps growing. So and we see that in a lot of like underserved communities in America, that it's really similar to what we see in LDCs where 21% of households in the Bronx are unbanked right 21, now. 21% of the households in the Bronx are unbanked. unbanked. Yes, which is crazy because the national average of unbanked in America is 7%. 7%. So especially in communities like the Bronx that have a super heavy immigrant population, immigrant population. Yeah. by traditional standards, low income. Yeah. Obviously, South Bronx is the traditionally poorest sure. congressional district that we have in the country. Yeah. It's a very similar 
pattern than what you see in the rest of the world. So yeah. let's say the world's unbanked population is around 35, 40%. Mm -hmm. And these super low income countries are more like 70% sure. unbanked. So even though obviously the numbers are very different, 20% is very different than 70% mm -hmm. being unbanked. But the ratios of what it's the averages across the world is very similar. Sure. So you see these like super concentrated areas of immigrants, you know, women that potentially are leading households in these neighborhoods are definitely suffering from that lack of connection to the formal economy. Sure. I mean, and where you identify the disproportionalities, that's where you start identifying these factors on the basis of gender, mm -hmm. on the basis of culture, race, and what have you, mm -hmm. uh, nationality. And that's where the picture becomes much more clear. And, mm -hmm. and obviously, as, as everyone knows, in the context of the globally unbanked, women make up the majority of the globally unbanked. Mm -hmm. So all of that's fascinating. You touched on data mm -hmm. and disaggregation of data. Again, I'm going to assume that the vast majority of the people who are listening to this podcast understand what we're talking about. But if you could unpack that concept. Yeah. So data is super helpful. Yeah. We've seen it help us develop almost everything from technology, marketing, sure. whatever we're using in this country. Disaggregating data, it actually sounds bad, but it's really good yeah. <laughs> in that yeah. it actually allows people to break down huge amounts of data into what I would call very relatable pieces of data. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's most important about disaggregated data is that if you are a part of a very niche or minority community or, you know, everyone is special in their own. Of course. You want to see yourself in the information that's put out there in the world, especially with something that's so personal and emotional like personal finance yeah. and money. Um, very similar, I'm assuming, to health, the health yeah. community. Um, if you don't see yourself represented in that information, you tend to not be able to identify with it or you draw really incorrect conclusions from that data. So like we were saying, if you know, you're know you seeing that you're a mom with three kids in the Bronx and you're seeing that only 6% of the country doesn't have a bank account, right. you're going, oh my God, I have not, like, I'm so far behind everyone. And right. then what that turns into for people is this a total resignment to right. improving your situation. They feel disempowered. Yeah. yeah. And so you're only 6%. I, yeah. You know, it's me and potentially a lot of other people that you know. Yeah. And you're just like, this is totally not for me. I'm not going to even invest in any sort of education or improving my situation by right. any means. And so that's what happens when you don't have reflected data. So I think the world has been pushing towards a place where all huge data sets are split by, you know, male, female, age, race, you know, socioeconomic different slices of data. I think a lot of really good organizations are doing a good job of this. I know the World Bank does a really great job of yeah. breaking up this data so that you're able to see it by every slice because every slice of data tells an incredibly different story. And if you're not giving that information to people, and that's something, honestly, people who are providing financial education like ourselves, like we have to keep challenging ourselves to say, how can we continuously present this information in a way that makes sense for everybody or everyone can see themselves sure. in the situation? I'll add one other organization that's doing good work with uh, gender disaggregated data, and it happens to be I don't know, <laughs> the United, United Nations. Capital you know, I thought you know I thought it made me a two on the nose. No, I, 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 it just gave me the opportunity to plug always, plug always. So I think we've touched on the challenge, we've touched on data. Mm -hmm. Let's move to solutions. Mm -hmm particularly with an emphasis on financial literacy, financial education, what are the tools that you've seen work? And also, I think it's a good opportunity to bring the balance into this discussion where just talk about what the balance is doing in particular in this space. Yeah, I think 
our challenge is not unique to just us. It's unique to every institution, government agency, business that is trying to provide some sort of financial education. I think banking institutions, financial institutions are doing a good job of understanding that like education is a huge part of getting people to, I mean, they're probably doing it for selfish reasons of using their products more often and more aggressively, but the idea is it's a win-win situation because everyone is becoming empowered. But the idea is everyone realizes that education is the key to growth, right? We are trying to do that at the balance and that we want to write all of our content from a really understanding point of view with a good tone that is saying, we understand what you're going through. There are obviously best practices out in the world, but everyone has a unique situation. So that's where the data part comes into it and says, we want to make sure you can see your specific situation in what we're telling you and really apply best practices to your real life Mm -hmm. as opposed to just saying, if you're not you know, putting 50% of your income to your necessities and 30% to wants and, you know, 20% to needs, then like, it's not the right thing. So we want to make sure everyone says, okay, this is my particular situation. I think contextualizing where people are in the world is really important. I think it's so easy to be like, everyone has this unique situation, but the idea is a huge part of improvement is just understanding where you sit in the rest of the world. And so being able to do that is really important to us to say, like, this is what you should be striving to. These are real goals for you to set and giving you the tools to actually do that, get there on the journey, whether that's just intense education, really handholding people through processes, giving people good options to pick financial products that are right for them um, is something that we are trying to focus on. And, you know, getting feedback from the rest of the world, doing surveys, you know, collecting a lot of first party data so that we're able to inform what our writers are working on, what kind of products are we developing, what's going to be useful for the world, as opposed to just sitting in an ivory tower saying, like, let's just write about this thing because it's in the news right now. Yeah. And for us, I think a lot of our financial literacy focus, well, in fact, really the ethos of it is that we're doing it on the ground. So we're connecting with the constituencies that we want to support from a financial education standpoint. And I'm not trying to hide the conversation, but- Oftentimes we're working with communities where, you know, there are a lot of communities we, we that we're working in where there's smartphones and tablets and things of that nature. But we also have to think about, OK, if we're dealing with an end user who does not have that kind of that level, if they have only first generation digital solutions, mm-hmm. what can we do? Can we bring chatbots into the situation where they could hear mm-hmm. you know, a message or something of that nature? So. I mean, it's just funny. There's so much just a lot. of Yeah. And I think I think a lot of the things that we can do is that there's a lot of people doing different things. So you're talking about getting on the ground, talking to people. Financial institutions are creating a lot of in-app education. They are trying to do a lot of outreach. Obviously, there's a ton of other nonprofit organizations that are doing a lot of this work. And I think our job as a site that reaches over 8 million people every month is saying, okay, let's try to give all that information and then let's also try to shed a light on the other options that are out there for people so they know where to get this kind Mm -hmm. of information and how can we help amplify a lot of the efforts that are going on everywhere else. So what can we do? What can we share so that people know that they have access to this information because you never know where they're going to get the information, right? We, I am a huge advocate for this is that I don't ever think that we should be the only solution for someone 
figuring out how to manage their finances. I want to make sure people have a full, well-rounded understanding of like what is out there. What are the resources that are available for them? So it means us sharing about what you guys are doing or what a bank, you know, capabilities are for them is what's important for our readers. So it's funny. I, if I were to talk in Wong for a second, (laughs) I would say that there's a lot of information asymmetries in this space. If I was to adopt sort of the Donald Rumsfeld language of people don't know what they don't know. Yeah. So I'm curious, what is the one element that the people that you're trying to support, mm-hmm. what is the element that they don't know they don't know? Or I guess or more, what's the most important element about financial education that you find is also the most widely overlooked, the most widely just not comprehended? I think that it's not just one specific concept or one specific thing. I think the hard part about it is that people are often coming to financial education for a very specific problem. It's Mm -hmm. not something that a lot of people are proactively thinking about. A lot of people are coming to us when they have a really serious question that they need to answer. They don't know what to do when there has been fraud on their credit card accounts. They don't know what to do if a loved one dies and how to manage all of their finances. You know, A lot of people are coming to us when they have a serious question that they need answered. And it's a very specific question. I think the biggest issue for all of these is like people are coming for one specific question and they're not necessarily thinking of even what's the thing, the next step in front of them that they have to get in touch with. So for us, it's more of being able, we create these things on the balance, what we call a journey, but it's essentially just a collection of information about a topic. So someone may come in, enter the site, on a very specific question or query and then our job is to be like and then do this thing i think it's that most people don't know what the next Next step step is is for any specific question they have right because everyone is at a different part of their financial life so you could literally be figuring out how to open a checking account sure you could also want to figure out how to maximize your retirement accounts how to open an investment account of some other kind But I think people start with just this very single-minded view of what they have to do and don't realize there's like 20 other parts of the process that they have to get involved with. So that's really what our goal is, just making people, leading them on the way so they're not just stopping at the single answer that they're looking for. It's really fantastic. Mm -hmm. We could talk about this for eons. (laughs) So we're winding down, and so we're down to the last two questions. And as always, we ask the same penultimate question, which is... I'd love for you just to take a few moments to talk about the journey that ultimately brought you to being general manager of The Balance. Yeah. So I have been working in digital media for, I think, over 10 years now. I've worked in a lot of different aspects. I started working specifically with brands and developing a lot of content on behalf of a brand, which led me into the publishing world Mm -hmm. specifically. I then had a stint where I worked specifically in advertising. So this data talk that we've been (laughs) talking about was really important for everything that I was doing, right? To understand, like, why are we making money a certain way? How do we connect with brands better? How do we perform better? Who's liking what we're doing? Who's not liking what we're doing? How do we attract more users Um, was a huge part of what I did. And then I had the opportunity because I was working at Dot Dash at the time to move over and be the general manager of the balance. And I think the reason that I was, one, asked to do this and two, most interested in doing this, is that I am actually 
very much in this place in my life personally right now. You know, I am just starting to have enough money to understand there are potential options for me other than spending money on rent and just living my day-to-day life and planning for a future, you know, got married a few years ago. And I think the concept was that I'm in a lot of the same positions as our readers are. And I think a huge issue, which is also an issue with a lot of the financial institutions and, you know, fintech solutions that we are talking about in terms of like, what are they offering for the world, is that I feel like I'm in a particularly good situation to say, this is what we need to be writing content about. This is who we need to be talking to, how we need to be talking to them, because I never had any formal financial education growing up, and I learned some stuff along the way from my parents, but my parents weren't particularly financially savvy. It was all about how do I learn stuff on my own? How do I make really smart decisions so that I can be in a better place than my parents particularly were? Uh, And I think a lot of the issue with a lot of incumbent financial institutions and a lot of, you know, incumbent financial publishers that are out there in the world is that they were run and edited and created by a lot of, you know, upper class men yeah, and who weren't really um, representing what, like we were saying before, the modern workforce actually is, right? Right. I think women just crossed over into over 50% of the labor force, Mm -hmm. at least here in America. And we are, and especially, like I said, over 30% of our country is now immigrants. The idea is that we want someone who is providing direction for the site to actually know what that audience yeah. is trying to sure. learn and do. Sure. Uh, and I think that's the most exciting part for me is getting us into a position where we are doing that in the best possible way. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. I So I think with the last question, I'd like to kind of shift the focus to financial institutions mm-hmm. for the reason being that so much of our work, or at least a fair amount of our work, involves the really important work of attempting to crowd in financial service providers into, again, these challenging markets, yeah. but also making the case to them that there is a business purpose for you to be here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, the conversations we have, it's explaining that, no, there isn't a lack of savings, it's just informal. Mm-hmm. So let's try to work to bring these savings online. Mm -hmm. So I guess the final question is, just if you were to pitch financial institutions, financial service providers on having a real focus on targeting unbanked communities, what's the pitch? Yeah. Because I think, frankly, it would be great for us to hear. And I just wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah. And I say this all the time. I mean, I even talk about this with our, you know, sales team when they're working with advertisers as well, is that Going into a community that is traditionally unbanked or an audience that has never really had exposure to financial solutions outside of just a checking account, let's say if you're talking for people in America maybe, is that you're potentially creating a lifelong partnership with a consumer, right? So you will always be that person for them. Loyalty is so big. I mean, like we said, finance is super emotional. So once you develop a relationship with someone, you have a customer potentially for life. Yeah. And so- Yeah. I mean, it's just good business for like their, you know, lifetime models for what their return on investment is will be really strong, especially if you can be like the first person in the door with these communities. And I think a lot of the things that we want to stress to them is like, like you said, it's not like they have don't have savings or they don't have a desire to be part of these formal economies, but it's just not easy for them. So I think I had seen something that was saying that 
there were some banks that saw huge success as soon as they added tellers coming to people's home to actually collect. It's it's a model we use, yeah. agency banking. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So giving people access to like no-fee bank accounts no fee bank where account, people sure. are able to just deposit money without having to feel they have to have a minimum balance. Sure. Um, and it really doesn't hurt the banks. Like they're making so much money on other things. Like right. we know the banks aren't really making all of their cash on checking accounts and right. savings accounts. That's just not how it works. Right. The idea is that you're able to empower these people who – are already generally self-employed. So let's say like 83% of women in LDCs are self-employed, right? You're creating people that are entrepreneurial in spirit. You're touching base with them. You're giving them an option to give them a place for their money to go where they feel safe. And if you are going sort of a little bit out of the realm of like what has been successful everywhere, I think the opportunity for their market size to grow is huge. And I think because there isn't so much of a great relationship with a lot of these communities and these formal financial institutions, I think if you are able to capitalize on just that extra human touch sure. with these communities that, like I said, you'll be able to start creating customers that will be with you for life, really. And then longer, because I think a lot of the great things about these communities that you may not be familiar with is like the familial connections are huge, mm -hmm. right? So. If you're creating a relationship with someone, it's likely that the rest of their family will yeah. have a connection with you as well. And so I think for a bank, in terms of just business purposes, it's just good business to be able to reach out to new consumers sure. and just making the smallest change in their effort of what they're doing or you know, giving them access to lockboxes to yeah. keep all their personal belongings and you know, financial documents and stuff. Really, really small changes will definitely enable people to have a relationship with you for a really long time and, mm -hmm. and ultimately do things other than, than just saving money. It's right, like setting up lines of credit, right. starting a business, doing all of these things that are ultimately going to create a much more fruitful and more lucrative relationship for the financial institution down yeah. the line. Just a fantastic way to close what has been a, a really great and informative conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was great. It was great. Lauren Silbert is the general manager of The Balance. Thanks again. Capital Musings is a production of the Partnerships Policy and Communications Unit of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Fernando Tharauth and Carlos Macias are our producers. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.